0: We invite you this morning to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul in the church at Corinth had certainly what could be described as a complicated relationship. He had taken the gospel to Corinth in chapter 4. He calls himself their father through the gospel because he was the one who brought the gospel to them. Uh, Yet there was tension between himself and the church, between uh, the church and him. And uh, these letters reflect that. This one, uh, not as much personal, though some, uh, as the second Corinthians, which seems to be more of an apostolic defense because of people uh, questioning his standing as an apostle, this one uh, really hitting many of the problems and tensions that are at Corinth. Uh, in some ways, it's a good thing for us to see this because I believe uh, there's a tendency uh, in our day to discard difficult relationships. Right? I mean, if if we uh, if we thought about it, we might be going. Well, like, get a life, people. There's other churches. I'll go serve them. Those Philippian folks up the road like me a lot. I'll go spend time with them. You know, and, and we 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 sort of are inclined that way in our day, uh to to turn around and just sort of hand them off. Uh, some of it is because the bonds of connection uh, perhaps run a little more shallow in our day, sometimes for good, what well, we might call good reasons. Uh, modern prosperity, mobility, I mean, all the things that, that uh, can be utilized by us can have people who, cultures where people grew up in the same town, the same community with all those ties tightly together and, and couldn't just like pack up and move to the other side of the country, let alone the other side of the world. And now people can just go, right? And sometimes they go for advancement, prosperity, but the natural, normal ties of community, probably for some of those reasons, uh, run a little thinner than they used to. Obviously, for lots of bad reasons, community ties are not that strong anymore because we've privatized life in a way uh, that, that ultimately makes personal fulfillment the ultimate objective. It, at times, it's just sort of mind-blowing to me, right? We can, in our culture at times, look at somebody, say, who dives on a grenade to save his buddies and call him a hero. And rightly so, because no greater love than to lay down your life. But we also live in a culture that can have someone abandon their family to find themselves and have that be called heroic and courageous. That's the world we live in now. That people can abandon the most primary relationships they have And if they can frame it properly in self-fulfillment, they're looked at as being courageous, that they were willing to step out, right? So we live in a different kind of world that has the primary motive of everything coming from within the individual, rather than the bonds of community, rather than inside of where there are legitimate relationships that stake a claim on us. So Paul moves toward these people rather than away from them, right? He actually is is turning toward them because they matter to God, they matter to him, and they matter to the mission of Jesus Christ. They are the temple of God at Corinth, and what's happening in their midst is having an effect on the witness of Christ in the community. And so instead of abandoning them because he's frustrated with them or responding lovelessly to their lovelessness toward him, he actually moves toward them and, in fact, does something that might seem uh, very odd to us. He starts the body of the book, so to speak, with a Long thanksgiving about them. Look beginning in verse 4 of chapter 1. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in, or I think really among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's the question that I want us to try to answer from this text, and that is how can you remain thankful for difficult people? How can you remain thankful in the midst of conflict? Because that's what Paul is here. And he really gives us two answers because he has two sentences in all these verses. The first sentence goes from verse four all the way through the end of verse eight. And then in verse nine, there's a second sentence. And so we see here, I think, two reasons why we can remain thankful even for difficult people or when we're in conflict. The first reason found in verses four through eight is because the foundation of gratitude is the recognition of God's grace, right? Notice he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. So, so he's actually gonna express his thanks as, as would only make sense because his thanks in this case is a prayer report. He's telling them what he thanks God for. So he thanks God for his grace, which is operative in them. He sees what God has done through his grace and offers thanks. And so let's just, uh, let's just sort of work our way through it. The first question I would ask is, where is this grace found? And it's, and it's answered at the end of verse four, which was given you in Christ Jesus. Notice the words was given you because that's a pattern throughout these verses that I think is very deliberate on Paul's part because he's using verbs that we would describe as passive verbs. So, They are all the recipient of these things. These are things that God has done for them. And that's what he's trying to highlight. Notice in verse four, it says, the grace of God, which was given to you. In verse five, he says, you were enriched in him. In verse six, he talks about the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And then he says down in verse nine, you were called. So all of these emphasize what God has done for them in his grace, all the outworking of God's kindness to them because of grace. Paul sees the hand of God in that. That's why he can give thanks. But he also is wanting them to remember that these are all the things that God has done for them. Look over to chapter four for a second because uh, one of the things I tried to do last week and we'll do a little bit this morning is to show you how the opening of this book is preparing for the themes and ideas that Paul will express. Look at chapter four and verse seven. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So he's gonna... He's going to come around to the pride that's causing a problem in the congregation and, and challenge their superiority complex, right? Why are you thinking so highly of yourself? What do you have that wasn't given to you? And if it was given to you, why do you boast as if it wasn't? Well, he's closing a loop there that he starts in four, one, four, where he says, You were given this grace in Christ. On your way back to chapter 1, verse, the front of it, look at chapter 1 and verse 31, because here's Paul's uh, sort of summary response of what God has done. In verse 30, he says, by his doing, you are in Christ. And then verse 31, the conclusion of that, so that just as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If everything that they have is the result of God's grace, then it is a gift that's come to them and they should not be inflated in their egos about it. They should be humbled by it. And so he starts right away. by saying, I'm thanking God for the grace that was given you. You've been recipients of God's grace. And I want to praise and thank God for that. Back over to chapter one and look at verse four again. And I think we need to see particularly, and and this is probably an obvious point, but sometimes we forget the obvious. Notice it says the last part of verse four, which was given you in Christ Jesus. So they have received these things. God's grace has come to them through Jesus Christ and is received by faith in him, his person and work, that he is the Messiah, Christ. He's Jesus, God's son, who is the Messiah. He's described later in this same unit. He has described earlier as the Lord. Uh, In fact, Paul's central message, he says in chapter two, when he was at Corinth, he determined to know nothing among them except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the opening nine verses of the book of 1 Corinthians, he mentions Jesus Christ 10 times. I mean, he just keeps coming back to everything they have, they have in Christ. All that God's done for them is in Christ. It's in Christ that they stand. And so he wants them to see right at the beginning that his whole heart toward them is shaped by what God has done for them through Christ. He's bestowed his grace on them. That grace is found in Christ, and that should be the thing that is the center point of their lives. Now let's see what God's grace has actually done or provided for them. Look at Beginning in verse five, there's sort of a statement of a comprehensive blessing from God that in everything you were enriched in him. So Paul expands this statement out to all that they have received. Everything, I think, makes it larger than the spiritual gifts he's going to mention in a moment, that all of God's people for all of, all of God's blessings for all of his people are grace. The word enriched here is, is actually most often Paul talks about God being rich, right? God who's rich in mercy. But in this particular case, he actually is saying God has made you rich with every blessing. In fact, in chapter 8 of Second Corinthians, he talks about this, this exchange that happened, that Christ who is rich became poor, so we who are poor might become rich in him. So they are viewed as having the riches of God's blessing brought to them through Christ. He's blessed them in a a comprehensive way. All of God's blessings have been bestowed on them. But then he narrows it to to a couple of concrete expressions of that. Look at the end of verse 5. In all speech and all knowledge, and then also look at the beginning of verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So if you're familiar at all with the book of First Corinthians, you know that one of the problems that Paul will have to confront and deal with is a uh, a misuse of the gifts and uh, incorrect understanding of them. So, so he'll take basically three chapters, 12, 13, and 14 to, to confront that. But, but the misuse of God's gifts should not leave to a, an abandonment of them or a destroying of them just because they're misusing them. So he actually wants to give thanks for what God has given to them. At the, end of verse, uh, at the end of verse five, he says, all speech and all knowledge, which people immediately start to think at Corinth that that speech has got to be tongues and the knowledge has got to be sort of miraculous words of knowledge. And and I would, I would imagine that that's part of it, but I don't think that's all of what he's talking about. Because the word speech there is used in chapter two to speak about the kind of preaching that he was engaged in. And it's simply summing up all the ways in which people communicate and speak God's truth to one another. God's the source of that. He's given to the church the things that are needed for the speaking and teaching of God's truth. And knowledge comes along in chapter eight, and it's not miraculous knowledge. It's actually a kind of knowledge, he says, that could puff up. And when he unpacks what that knowledge is, it's someone's knowledge that an idol is nothing. Right? You didn't have a, some kind of special revelation of knowledge to the person to know that an idol is nothing. That, that's actually based on the word of God. But someone who goes from pagan idolatry to Christian faith in Christ, they come to that conclusion because they are known by God and God allows them now to see what the idol truly is. So knowledge isn't just some miraculous impartation of information. He's saying, listen, God's blessed you with with the communication of truth and the understanding of God's truth. Some of which would be addressed as ways in which people are speaking on behalf of God and things that people know because God's revealed something to them, right? But it, that's not the whole thing. That's a part of the thing. And he says, this has come from God. Notice the beginning, in verse seven, they don't lack in any gift God has supplied for the needs of his work at Corinth, right? He looks at this church and says, God's given you exactly what you need, right? You don't lack any gift to carry out the work of God. They have all that they need for life and godliness, to use Peter's language about it, right? God has been so gracious to this church at Corinth that they have an abundance of supply from God. They've been enriched. They have all kinds of speech and knowledge. They don't lack any gift in what God has for them. So Paul can look at them and give thanks to God. I mean, this is a church that God has been extraordinarily kind to. But also, God's grace has produced a confident expectation in them. Notice verse seven. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he sees this congregation and he sees a group of people as a whole. And this, I probably should have said this all the way along, right? He's writing to the church at Corinth. It doesn't mean that there aren't some problems in that church that are exceptions to some of these things, Chapter five, he's gonna tell them to rem- remove that wicked person from your midst, right? So, so he's not saying that this applies to the entire church without exception, but that God actually has done these things for the congregation of people at Corinth. And his, his assessment of the congregation of the people at Corinth is that they are actually waiting eagerly for the return of Christ which was and should be the universal stance of God's people. The gospel is not just about what Jesus did, but also what he will do. He will, if I could put it in this terms, of 1 Thessalonians 1, which I quote regularly, he will rescue us from the wrath to come. He will come and establish his kingdom on this earth. He will then, when we see him in his glory, that will be the revelation of Christ. That he will be seen to be who he truly is. And the gospel calls on us to wait for his son from heaven. And, and we, we make a serious mistake when we reduce the gospel to, to such a present commodity that we eliminate that forward-looking aspect of it because that's not the way they preach the gospel in the bible i mean just read the sermons in the book of acts just read the new testament and you will see a gospel that promises the coming of jesus christ but you can probably pick up a ton of gospel tracts and listen to a lot of gospel sermons that say almost nothing about it. I mean, they'll talk about you going to heaven, or you'll be ready to go to heaven when you die, but they don't really talk about the fullness of Christ exalted and returning as the judge of both the living and the dead, the one who... He, to whom all will give an account of themselves because God has shown that he's the one who will be Lord and Christ over all things. That's the gospel. And Paul knew that God's grace had turned their hearts from this world to the promise of Christ and his coming. Right. He had, he had shifted them fundamentally in the terms of what ultimate reality was included in there, right? And here's what I mean by that. You and I are soaked in, saturated by a culture that views real as only this world, right? Right now is it. Be in the present. soak it up, make the most of it, enjoy it. You only have one life. You may as well make the most of it. And, and that worldview permeates our, our world and excludes a proper biblical understanding of what is real, what's ultimate. And if we think that only this world is real, then our hearts and affections and our hopes will all be fixed in it but if we actually believe what the gospel promises, that Christ is coming and he's going to establish a rule and reign on this earth and we will enjoy that rule with him, then our hearts are to be set on something above and not on things below. That we will have God prom- God's promise to us of a crown which he has for all those who love his appearing, right? So, so we have to realize that a heartbeat in us for the appearing of Christ is the evidence of God's grace and the revelation of his glory. And Paul knows that congregation enough to know that they are eagerly awaiting the revelation of Christ. So he thanks God for that. He thanks God for that. That's what God's grace has done for them. And this grace also for Paul is a sort of double confirmation. Look in in verse five, because it's a confirmation of the gospel. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So the work of God by his grace to enrich them and, and have them have all speech and knowledge and not be lacking in any gift, all of that was the grace of God confirming the testimony about Jesus Christ. That, that it was God showing himself to be real among them. God's work to transform sinners and create an assembly of worshipers in the midst of a grossly pagan and perverse city was a testimony of the, a confirmation of the testimony about Christ, the gospel. Right? What God did there was confirming or guaranteeing that the gospel is true. I mean, it, it produces real dynamic effects among those who once were captured to the idolatry of their community and the immorality that was pervasive there. And God called them out of that darkness into his light, established a a community, a congregation of believers, among which he was actively working. And that was the confirmation of the testimony about Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that, that we have to be careful of, and, and I think regularly remind ourselves, is that, um, and Corinth struggled with this, right? Because they were beginning to shift away from, from objective truth of the gospel to subjective experientialism. And, and, and we should rightly reject experientialism. As dangerous without rejecting experience. Right? Experientialism makes our experience the standard. Genuine experience can't be abandoned, or else we move from genuine Christianity into a kind of formalism which Paul would condemn in, in the pastoral epistles is people professing godliness, but denying the power of it. I mean, if Christianity is real, it changes things. If the true and living God has chosen to live among his people, there is evidence of it. There's an experience of the grace of God. Something happens through the gospel, through the power of his word to produce transformed lives and real evidence of God's grace. I mean, just, just track along one way that Paul would be emphasizing this, right? The gospel produces life and life produces fruit. They had seen fruit at Corinth. The Spirit of God is the one who opens their eyes of understanding, gives them spiritual life, and actually chapter 12 will say, places them into the body of Christ. When the Spirit comes into the life of a person, he actually also comes bearing gifts, just like he talks about here. You don't lack any gift because that's the Spirit's work among you. His work is described in chapter 12, verse 3, as the manifestation of the Spirit. So the gifts are the manifestation of the Spirit's presence at Corinth among God's people for those who are the body of Christ. Gifts are given for the common good, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says. So if the Spirit is given gifts, those gifts will produce good among the body of believers. Something will happen that can be described as the common good of the body. Right? So, so think about it. If you're, if you've got some idea of Christianity that's all notional, theoretical, all just ideas, but actually doesn't generate life, doesn't manifest the power of the Spirit, doesn't accomplish the common good through the gifts, doesn't result in the edification of the body, it's not biblical Christianity. I mean, trust me, I am absolutely opposed to the kind of wacky excessive uh experientialism that tries to pass itself off as Christianity where it's it's like you know people people think they have a word from god and it's just their imagination or they you know they feel all warm and fuzzy and they really have the flu they don't have any kind of spiritual movement going on right it, i that that has always led into serious danger and, and uh, compromise of the truth, corruption of God's people. I mean, we've got enough church history to know where that path leads, but we also have enough church history to know where this path leads to so that you can have a name that you're alive, but dead. That's what Jesus says about one of the seven churches, right? I mean, it's possible to have a kind of formal Christianity which does not have the power of Christ operative in it. There's no life there. And, and Paul is saying that these evidences of God's work by the Spirit among them were the confirmation of the testimony about Christ. In fact, Paul gives us a great example of what this would look like in chapter 14 when he says they're gathered together and someone speaks by the Spirit and believers are brought to conviction and edified by it. And he says, an unbeliever says, certainly God is among you, right? It causes them to see that the true living God lives here the life of the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be alive, right? And and don't think culture expressions, don't think think all the kind of faux life that people have because you can create experiences, right? I mean, we we could jazz this place up with lights and sounds and smoke and have you feel a bunch of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real transformation in lives through the power of the Spirit as he uses the gifts he's given to the parts of his body. That God is changing people. And Paul said, I saw that there. Right? It was confirmed among you by this gracious activity of God enriching your church with the gifts that you were needed. But also notice in verse eight, there's a double confirmation I said, because Paul uses the same word and and Nasby uh, does a good job of holding those together. In six, it says, the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed among you. Then in verse eight, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the believers also will be confirmed by the work of God. And he uses the same word to emphasize their security in Christ. Just as the testimony was confirmed through the grace of God that enlivened them and enriched them, they will be confirmed through Jesus Christ, the one who is the Lord, right? God will do this for them. In verse uh, verse eight, the, the words there, to the end, Uh, some of you may have a translation that has completely because it's, it could be either one, right? You could take the, you could take the E there and capitalize it. You will be confirmed to the end, right? And, and it's talking about that, that you're going to be confirmed all the way there, or it could be like when we'd say something about it's, it's complete or it's full, right? And, and, uh, it may be because it, it, it has sort of that, double kind of nuance to it that Paul's making a play on words here, right? We'd call it a double entendre if you wanted to look at it, but it's a play on words. I tilt toward the completely because the very next phrase talks about what the actual end is, right? And blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So so any way you take it, it's simply f- this, that God began a good work in them and he will continue it, like Philippians 1.6 says, until the day of Christ. And here's Paul saying the same thing to the Corinthian church. He will also confirm you to the end, blameless at the day of Christ. All right, now just pause and think about that for a moment. You think of Philippine, you go, oh yeah, I get that one. You think of Corinthians, you go, ah, Paul, this is like the wacky church. But, but he saw the evidence of God's grace and he was confirmed, he was confident of God's confirmation of them. When you take the combo in, this, in these verses, the combo of the word confirmed and blameless and day of our Lord, what he's talking about is guiltless based on their justification, right? That that one day, then when they come before the judgment seat of Christ, they will be recognized as blameless because of the righteousness of Christ. They will be confirmed as God's people. Uh, We looked at 131 to 130, and you can see why why I, I believe why I would say it this way. 130 says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, right? So God has done this. You are his doing in Christ Jesus. And then it's who's Jesus for us? He became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, So we have righteousness in Christ, and if we're in Christ then, when we stand before God, we will be confirmed as his because the confirmation will be blameless because of the righteousness of Christ. It's not that we actually will be sinless, but that our standing in Christ is with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We will be accepted by God in him so Paul's gratitude is rooted in God's grace and because of that he can speak confidently about the believer's security in Christ even when things look challenging on a human level right and, and again I think this is good for us to think about because you know I, um our tendency might be to look at a church like Corinth and and write the entire lot of them off. Right? I mean, you, you guys are such a mess. You must be a synagogue of Satan. But Paul looks at it and sees what God's grace had done at Corinth. He knows that that grace is still operative are there problems? Yes. Are there real threats to the church of Corinth? Yes. That's why he's writing. But he doesn't approach it from the stance of, of a uh, just a scold. Right? He's recognizing the grace of God and he wants to affirm that he's thankful for that. And, and that... Entire single sentence, verses four through eight, is telling us the foundation for Paul's thankfulness. God's grace in their past, they were enriched. And in their present, they are not lacking in any gift. And in the promised work of grace, he will also confirm you, right? So he looks at this group of people and says, listen, I know what God did. I know what God's doing and I know what God will do. So I'm giving thanks to God for that because that's all of his grace. Now look at verse nine because here's the continuation of God's grace or Paul's gratitude and it's rooted in God's faithfulness. It almost in some ways just sort of sits uh, oddly next to it because you've got this whole sentence on packing in verses four through eight, and then he hits that period at the end of eight, and then he just says, God is faithful. Through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I think the way we should understand that is, listen, I know what God did and 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 all that God's grace has accomplished, and that same God is faithful, right? I know what he did, and he's a faithful God. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. How do you keep expressing thanks for challenging people? You bank on the faithfulness of God to follow through on what he started, right? You're you're looking not to them, but you're looking to God. And he looks at particularly The call of God in their lives. Notice verse nine, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. And, and that for Paul is a very powerful word, right? It's not, it's not just simply invite. It's God effectively working in them to bring them to salvation. And, and we'll see that in a few weeks, but let me just point you toward it. Look at verses 22 through 24. For indeed, Jews asked for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. All right, as you may have heard me say before, this call cannot be invited Because he says, I preach to the Jews and I preach to the Gentiles and I preach the message of Christ crucified. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's moronic. Right? So if he's preaching to them that message and their reaction is, that's offensive, that's foolish, then what makes the difference? It can't be the invitation because he's giving the invitation to all of them. He's calling them all to come to Christ. He, Paul, is calling them all to come to Christ. But then there's a call coming from God. And when that call comes, the same people who viewed the cross as offensive or scandalous now see it as the power of God. The same ones that considered it moronic or foolishness. They now see it as the wisdom of God. Something God has done in them has opened the eyes of their understanding so that they see the light of the glory of Christ, right? Something that God does through the gospel. We need to remember that it's always through the gospel, right? That's why Paul says, It really doesn't matter if I preach Christ crucified and the Jews consider it a stumbling block or the Greeks consider it foolishness. It doesn't matter if that's what the overwhelming response is. I'm not going to change that message because that's the message that God uses to show his power and his wisdom. It's in the very thing that is offensive to the unbelieving heart or foolish to the unbelieving mind it's that very thing that god uses to bring them to salvation in christ because it's the power of god that does it it's not the speaker it's not the context it's not the packaging It's not all of the things that we like to attribute it to. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God being pressed into the heart of a sinner to see that Christ had to die because I sinned. Christ had to go to the cross because I sinned against God and committed sins worthy of eternal judgment. It's that message that's the center and Christ must be proclaimed. And Paul says that that's what he did. I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what God did? In the midst of that message, in a world that rejected it, God actually called people to himself. It was his power. And the one who called them Paul says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 24, faithful is he who called you, who will also do it. Right? He called you to salvation. He will save you. It wasn't based on you, it wasn't based on your will, your strength, your wisdom left to yourself, you would come to the same conclusion that the Jews and the Greeks did. But when God shines the light and draws the heart to Christ, faithful is he who calls you, who will also do it. That's why Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, them must I also bring, and they will hear my voice. And Jesus could say, of all that the Father has given me, I will lose not one. Because he's the shepherd who saves. He's the God who's faithful to do that. And so Paul looks at this statement and says, God is faithful who called you. He's not going to drop you. He's going to hold you. He's going to confirm to the end the thing that he has begun. And notice the purpose of God's call in verse nine. He called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is again subtly making Jesus the center here, right? Why did God save us? He saved us so that we could be in a right relationship with him through his son. So in verse eight, you have forgiveness, confirmed blameless in verse nine, you have fellowship. So God has taken the debt of our sin and has wiped it away. So we are going to be blameless before him. But it's the whole point of that, right? The whole point of that is so we can be in relationship with God, right? Forgiveness is not simply getting a card that says, hey, your sins are all gone. Go ahead and do what you want to do. Right, It's actually the thing that separates us from God is our sin. So when God forgives us, it's so we can have fellowship with him. We can be brought into relationship with him. We can know him because knowing him is eternal life. That's what Paul's after, and that's what he's grateful for. So Paul maintains a grateful heart for the Corinthians, and if you and I are going to do that in our lives with difficult people, then we must expand our view of people to include God. Right? If, I, if I've if got some difficult relationship or some challenging uh, life or ministry thing, if I only see the person, then my heart is gonna struggle with, with it. But if I see that person in relationship to God, what God has done in their life previously, what God is doing currently, what God has promised to do for them eternally, then my heart can shift to thankfulness. I can begin to thank God for his grace. So I have to recognize God's grace in their lives and depend on his faithfulness to continue. If we were the Corinthians and we hear Paul saying this, right? It should remind us that God's grace is the source of everything that we have. There's not a person in this room that ought to boast as if they're superior to anybody else because everything you have has come from the grace of God to you. It should therefore humble us so that we're not self-centered and pride-filled. And it does so by pointing us to Christ. I mean, what a a beautiful way for Paul to to take the, the realities of what God has done and weave them into his prayer life And also his word to help restore the relationship with them because he's moving to them from the standpoint of God's grace as the first and most fundamental element of everything. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for loving us with an everlasting love and leading us by grace to know that love. Thank you. That we can have the confidence of which we've sung even today, that, that the power of Christ is what holds us, and, and we can bank on your faithfulness to what you have done in Christ for those who trust in him. And Lord, help us to live our lives with a commitment to the things that matter most to you. And you gave your son for your people. Jesus laid down his life for his church. Help us to have a heart toward the things that matter like Paul has here. Instead of as the tendency in our day is to constantly be finding fault and criticizing and trying to prove ourselves better than others, May we see your grace operating in other people's lives. May we remind ourselves of your kindness both to us and to them and your faithfulness in completing the work which you've begun. And Lord, move us toward yourself, and as we all do that, we'll move toward each other with the kind of heart that is humbled by your mercy and grace. May you be honored as we look to Christ. And Lord, please open open eyes and hearts to the truth of the cross that we cannot atone for our own sin. We can't pay it off. We can't, we can't work and earn your favor. If that were true, then Jesus died unneeded and unnecessary. It was because we can't do those things that Jesus died to accomplish them for us. Help us to have complete confidence and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone. We ask it in his name. Amen.